As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff. It's The Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 1067 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. February 12th, I'm Ashley Banks filling in for Roland Martin. Let me tell you what's coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered. As day four of the Trump impeachment trial, his attorneys are trying to make their case against his conviction. We'll show you some of their arguments. New evidence shows that former Attorney General Bill Barr blocked Derek Chauvin from pleading guilty for the murder of George Floyd. Attorney Ben Crump will be here with the details, and we'll show you an interview Roland did with a black woman who owns a COVID testing center in Texas. In our Education Matters segment, four educators discuss Biden's plans for parents who want school choice. Plus, we'll show you Roland's one-on-one interview with the legendary Otis Williams of The Temptations. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin. Let's get started. team took center stage inside of the Capitol building as they argued that their client, former President Donald Trump, should not be impeached for his actions leading up to the deadly insurrection on January 6th. Now, 
Trump's lawyers, they showed their own tweets and played videos of Democrats encouraging protests while claiming the House managers presented manipulated evidence and engaged in constitutional cancel culture. The defense continued to make their case that the former president has freedom of speech and that he did not directly incite the mob to storm the Capitol building. Here are some of the highlights from today. The article of impeachment now before the Senate is an unjust and blatantly unconstitutional act of political vengeance. This appalling abuse of the Constitution only further divides our nation when we should be trying to come together around shared priorities. Like, ever, like every other politically motivated witch hunt the left has engaged in over the past four years, this impeachment is completely divorced from the facts, the evidence, and the interests of the American people. The Senate should promptly and decisively vote to reject it. No thinking person could seriously believe that the President's January 6th speech on the ellipse was in any way an incitement to violence or insurrection. The suggestion is patently absurd on its face. Nothing in the text could ever be construed as encouraging, condoning, or enticing unlawful activity of any kind. The reality is Mr. Trump was not in any way, shape, or form instructing these people to fight or to use physical violence. What he was instructing them to do was to challenge their opponents in primary elections, to push for sweeping election reforms, to hold big tech responsible, all customary and legal ways to petition your government for redress of grievances, which of course is also protected constitutional speech. The frequency with which House managers relied on unproven media reports shocked me as I sat in this chamber and listened to this. And there's a lot that we don't know yet about what happened that day. According to those around him at the time, reportedly responded. Trump reportedly reports across all major media outlets. Major news networks, including Fox News, reported. Reported. Reportedly summoned. Reportedly. Reportedly not accidental. According to reports, <clears throat> President Trump was reportedly, who reportedly spoke to the guard. And was widely reported. Media reports. According to reports. Reported. Reportedly. As any trial lawyer will tell you, reportedly is a euphemism for, I have no real evidence. We will not take most of our time today us of the defense, in the hopes that you will take back these hours and use them to get delivery of COVID relief to the American people. Let us be clear, this trial is about far more than President Trump. It is about silencing and banning the speech the majority does not agree with. It is about canceling 75 million Trump voters and criminalizing 
political viewpoints. That is what this trial is really about. It's the only existential issue before us. It asks for constitutional cancel culture to take over in the United States Senate. Are we going to allow canceling and banning and silencing to be sanctioned in this body? To the Democrats who view this as a moment of opportunity, I urge you instead to look to the principles of free expression and free speech. I hope, truly, that the next time you are in the minority, you don't find yourself in this position. To the Republicans in this chamber, I ask, when you are next in the majority, please resist what will be an overwhelming temptation to do this very same thing to the opposing party. Members of the Senate, this concludes the formal defense of the 45th President. President Trump engaged in a course of conduct that incited an armed attack on the Capitol. He did so while seeking to overturn the results of the election and thwart the transfer of power. And when the attack began, he further incited violence aimed to his own vice president, even as demonstrated his state of mind by failing to defend us and the law enforcement officials who protect us. The consequences of his conduct were devastating on every level. Police officers were left overwhelmed, unprotected. Congress had to be evacuated. Our staff barricaded in this building, calling their families to say goodbye. Some of us, like Mr. Raskin, had children here. And these people in this building, some of whom were on the FBI's watch list, took photos, stole laptops, destroyed precious statues, including one of John Lewis, desecrated the statue of a recently deceased member of Congress who stood for nonviolence. This was devastating. And the world watched us. And the world is still watching us to see what we will do this day and will know what we did this day 100 years from now. Those are the immediate consequences and our actions will reverberate as to what are the future consequences. The extremists who attacked the Capitol at the president's provocation will be emboldened. All our intelligence agencies have confirmed this. It is not house managers saying that. There are quite literally standing by and standing ready. Donald Trump told them this is only the beginning. They are waiting and watching. The point is this, that by the time you call the cavalry, cavalry, not cavalry, but cavalry of his thousands of supporters on January 6th,
an event he had invited them to, he had every reason to know that they were armed, violent, and ready to actually fight. He knew who he was calling and the violence they were capable of. And he still gave his marching orders to go to the Capitol and, quote, fight like hell to stop the steal. How else was that going to happen? If they had stayed at the Ellipse, maybe it would have just been to violently in, in fight in protest with their words. But to come to the Capitol? That is why this is different, and that is why he must be convicted and acquitted. And disqualified. All right, it's time to introduce my panel. We have Candace Kelly, legal analyst, Mustafa Santiago Ali, former senior advisor for environmental justice at the EPA, and Michael Imotep, host of the African History Network show. Thank you so much, guys, for joining us today. Now, I want to start with you, Michael. How can these people stand there with straight faces and say that Donald Trump did not incite this insurrection when all of us heard his words, when all of us have seen what he's done in the last four years in this country? Uh, well, very simple, uh, Ashley, and uh, thanks for having me on today. Uh, and shout out to Roland, wherever he is, probably wearing some alpha gear, but <laughs> I won't hold that against him. Um, it, the reason why is because they sold their souls to the devil and they had to give the devil chains. This is basically why. So what we're looking at is... There was one point during the questioning session after the defense finished making their arguments, and then they opened it up to questions, four hours worth of questions from the senators, senators opposing questions. That's taking place right now. There was one question asked uh, by one of the senators. I don't remember which senator asked the question. Um, so basically to the effect, uh, so Donald Trump uh, says that the election was stolen. Okay, and they were asking, okay, so are you saying that the election was stolen? Is that the argument that you're make, making, that the election was stolen from Donald Trump? And the uh, attorney did not want to answer the question directly. He said, it doesn't matter what I think. Well, no, the lie of the big steal, okay, the, the name of the rally was Stop the Steal Rally at the White House. The lie of the big steal is directly tied to the insurrection. You weaponize this lie that the election was stolen from you to enrage these people, and then you sent them to the U.S. Capitol to interrupt a, constitu a constitutional mandate, a constitu constitutionally mandated uh, joint session of Congress, joint session of the leg legislative branch of government, where they are certifying the uh, votes from the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. You wanted them to interrupt that and stop that so that you could stay in power. So the lie is directly tied to the insurrection. Exactly. Like you're saying, Michael, some people are, are stating that that day on January 6th that Donald Trump did not incite the insurrection. Let's pretend he didn't that day, although we know he did. You can say leading up to that point, he had been inciting something like what we saw on January 6th. Now, Candace, I want to go to you. What were your thoughts on those remarks? Well, I think that when we look at this, we are looking at a train that's just already off of its tracks. And it's just not unfolding the way in terms of due process that a regular session would. Let's look at the facts. We've got somebody like Ted Cruz, 
who is behind closed doors. He's supposed to be our juror, right? He is speaking with the defense attorneys. And that's really unacceptable. When we look at any court of law, which we know this isn't, but let's analogize it and, and look at it that way. We also know that a lot of the Republicans weren't even in the room at the time listening to any of the arguments. We also know that there are going to be 17 people who are, are, are not going to say, hey, yes, let's go ahead um, and let's make sure that we disqualify Donald Trump all along. So when I look at these statements, like you said, Ashley, and the fact that they really are just lies and the fact that leading up to it, we see all of the little breadcrumbs that we can connect and make one big loaf of bread, right? At the end of the day, on January 6th, the Republicans, it didn't matter because they were playing a game today where they were just kind of killing time. Allotted 16 hours, only took two hours and a half in order to make their case, their case because they ultimately knew and know what the decision is going to be. But I think that well, after two days of 10 hours of what the, um, the, uh, the prosecution, if you will, uh, did in terms of laying its case, they laid their case. They showed that there was foreseeability. How could Donald Trump not know when he gets briefings every day? And we know that he watches TV every day the way that he does. How could he not know that there were going to be people there who were not going to riot the way that they did? He <clears throat> called for it. He could foresee it. And that's what he got. As Michael said, it was called Stop the Still. How else were we going to stop right. it? It didn't happen the 61 days um, in, in court in the cases. It wasn't proved. So they had to use this, and this was the last resort. And Stop Cand still. Candace, like you're saying, Trump knew what he was doing all along. Mustafa, yeah. what are your thoughts? Well, this is one of the worst defense cases that I've ever seen. You know, it's really quite simple. You know, let's just put it in a very simplistic form. You know, they're trying to convince you that what you saw, you did not see. What you heard, you did not hear. And, and for those who were there in the Capitol, what you experienced you did not experience. And if, if folks are willing to actually not convict him, they are really convicting the Republican Party. They are saying that the Republican Party has no dignity, and we've all had debates about that. We're saying that the Republican Party has no credibility. We're saying that the Republican uh, Party does not care about democracy. All of the things that they have continued to espouse that is a part of their foundational elements are no longer of value. So they have a decision. These men and women have a decision to make. If they want to continue to destroy their party, then don't uh, convict Donald Trump. But if you want your party to survive, then you must convict him. No, that's a good point, Mustafa. I want to move on to an event that happened earlier this week. Now, Senator John Ossoff, he pressed Neera Tandon, President Joe Biden's pick to lead his budget office during her Senate confirmation hearing about funding for HBCUs. Now, during Tuesday's hearing, the Democratic senator discussed the importance of HBCUs and how they are, quote, gems in our nation's higher education system. Here's more of what he had to say. Georgia hosts some of the uh, most renowned historically black colleges and universities in the country. And HBCUs play a vital role, uh, not just serving the black community, but as gems in our nation's higher education system. Will you commit to working with my office to ensure that as the administration develops its budget request in upcoming years, that the needs of HBCUs are proportionally represented and well represented in the president's budget request? 
Senator, uh, as a as a candidate, President uh, President Biden did discuss the vital role HBCUs play um, uh, in amongst higher education institutions on equity uh, from an equity perspective in higher education and and essentially wealth building over the long term. And so it is a priority for the president um, and the vice president, and I would welcome the opportunity to work with you on those issues in support of HBCUs and the vital role that they play. So last week, we reported that the Maryland Senate passed a measure for a $577 million settlement to a long-running lawsuit involving Maryland's four HBCUs, which included Coppin State University, Morgan State, Bowie State, and the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. In 2006, a lawsuit was filed that alleged Maryland underfunded those four HBCUs. Now, as someone who graduated from one of those HBCUs, Morgan State University to be exact, I knew the school lacked resources when I was attending. I knew it was underfunded. And in order for me to compete with journalism students attending the PWIs in the state, including Towson and University of Maryland College Park, I knew I had to work three times as hard as those students to even be able to compete in the workforce. Now, Michael, I want to start with you. HBCUs have been getting the short end of the stick for a while now, but do you think the Biden administration will really cater to HBCUs? Uh, I, I think there will be more of a sensitivity to HBCUs, especially being that uh, you have Kamala Harris, who's a graduate of uh, Howard University. Um, so now part of this also, because the see the White House submits the budget to the legislative branch of government. Uh, and it's approved in Congress. So I, I think in the White House, I think there will be a greater sensitivity, uh, even a greater sensitivity than under the Obama administration, because one of the criticisms under the Obama administration was that um, you didn't have anybody, uh, if I remember correctly, you didn't have anybody in the cabinet who graduated from HBCU. This is one of the criticisms. There wasn't that sensitivity. And then also, even though uh, I think it was inadvertent. I don't think um, when they changed the Parent PLUS loan program to look back seven years uh, in the parent parents' credit history, and it had a devastating impact uh, on HBCUs, uh, it wasn't something, from, from my understanding of this, it wasn't something specifically done to hurt HBCUs, because it was all across the board. But what HBCU presidents were saying, and HBCU Digest, there were numerous articles written in HBCU Digest about this, the HBCU presidents were saying, you did not consult with us first before you made this change to see how this would impact us, okay? So I think with um, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris and, and probably others, I think you have a greater sensitivity in the White House. So we'll have to see what happens in the legislative branch of government, in the House and the Senate. Candace, do you agree with Michael? You know, definitely. I mean, Joe Biden is definitely going to be more sensitive to the issue because that was his platform. Let's end the racial disparity. So when we talk about racial disparity, we were talking about legacy and wealth building. And when we talk about legacy, we are talking about HBCUs, which historically, which is why they exist. They existed because of the fact that this was the way that African-Americans were able to get educated and try to close that wealth gap, one that is just far beyond what we want it to be. But certainly, President Joe Biden knows the level of expectation 
not only because he ran on that and because black people came to the table and voted for him, but because of the fact that, like Michael said, he's got someone that went to an HBCU, understands the value of it, uh, and understands what it means to be in college and how that affects legacy. And that's what we're looking at overall, legacy. The, the folks that we see out on the streets that are making it and aren't making it, it all has to do with what came before them. So when we can build that foundation, I am hoping that the president understands that that's the foundation that we need in order to move up. Now, Mustafa, if the Biden administration doesn't step up, what is something that HBCUs can do in order to get the funding they need? Well, we're going to have to work with public-private partnerships. But first of all, we should not let Biden uh, or members of Congress off the hook for making the investments. Uh, and the reason being is because you can't build back better without making sure that the alumni and those current students who are part of our HBCUs, HBCUs are not a critical part of that. Uh, the STEM programs and all these other programs that are going to be so critically important for us to be able to meet the need that the president has put out. The second part of that is that, you know, we should also be making sure that as the rest of the cabinet is filled out in the second and third level positions, that it's filled with individuals who have the sets of experiences who come from HBCUs, because there's a certain set of competencies that come with that education and those sets of experiences, which also will be critically important. And then, again, you know, the presidents can work with a number of others, whether it's foundations or whether it is in the corporate world, to make sure that they are also living up to this moment. There is a cultural shift that has happened in our country and you have to make the investments both in the people and in the resources that are necessary for both the sets of challenges that we have in front of us and a huge set of opportunities. Now, Michael, I'm sure this is an obvious question, but would you say the underfunding of HBCUs is just a bigger ploy to get rid of them? Um, I think that I think that's part of it to uh, get rid of them, but it, but also. Um, Sometimes now, historically, oftentimes you had, you know, sometimes Republicans that may have been more of an advocate for funding HBCUs. Uh, also, that's something else. But uh, a lot, of, I think, uh, a lot today you have a push to underfund them, uh, one to get rid of them, but also a lot of people don't know uh, beyond the African American community. A lot of people don't know the importance of HBCUs as well, um, beyond you know African Americans. So, at the same time, the real value of HBCUs, I, I really think, needs to be promoted. The the percentage of uh, doctors and and attorneys and and uh, public school teachers, like about fifty percent of African American public school teachers, and something like eighty percent of uh, judges. Looks like we lost Michael. Candace, now, Michael was making a good point that a lot of people don't have an understanding of the importance of HBCUs or the value that they have. Can you speak to the value of an HBCU and why they're necessary? Oh, sure. Well, hey, first, let me start by saying I went to Howard University. So the importance of value of going to an HBCU is that there are certain experiences, there are certain um, 
things that you do as a student where you're not interrupted by this whole idea of trying to negotiate who you are in terms of your race, which is often the case when you go to a mall or to a restaurant or to any place where you are specifically the O and O, the one and only somewhere. So you go to an HBCU, not only do you not have to deal with that, but you're able to build other skills in place of that, okay? So that you don't have those stressors. You don't have to com be competitive with the world in a way that you used to. And when you take that off of you, it shifts. It allows you to open yourself to do other things. And I just want to comment on something that you said earlier when you said, hey, you know, uh, it, what, what, what are the options if this doesn't happen in terms of the HBCUs that don't get the money? You know, let us not underestimate the power of sororities and fraternities. That leads us back to Kamala Harris once again in terms of what they can do in order to make some magic happen. I know that there are thousands of people who are listening today who understand the power of those sororities and fraternities to get together and shift and make movement and turn over possibly an idea that uh, that this could never happen, or if something doesn't happen, to make it happen. They do have a lot of power and a, and a pipeline to Kamala, who seems to be open to that. I mean, certainly she better. She's got a lot of sorority sisters that are looking for her to uh, pick up that phone at the other end. Yeah, very true, Candace. Now, uh, Mustafa, before we go to break, do you have any last words you'd like to say about this? Yeah, so we can't even deal with the paradigm of if they are not, because it should be an impossibility for them not to make the, the investments now. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, Joe Biden, in part of his executive orders, has talked about a full equity analysis of all the resources uh, and policy decisions that are happening inside the federal government. So, and then we also know, let's say in the environmental and climate context, that they are dedicating $2 trillion in that space. So how much of those dollars are actually going to go to HBCUs? How much of your resources at both CDC and HHS um, and a number of the other scientific uh, departments and agencies are now going to go to make the investments to build the critical infrastructure inside of our HBCU so that they can fully compete with uh, PWI universities, which we know have huge endowments and, and get all kinds of money that's coming in. So it is, in my mind, it is an impossibility, but we have to hold the accountability in the process of them not making significant investments inside of HBCUs. Yes. Now, Michael, I hear you're back. If you can just yes. finish your statement. Uh, repeat the question. I, I forget. You were talking about the value. The issue is that a lot of people don't have the understanding of the value. Oh, yeah, nationwide. And, and, and a lot of this has to do with also just people in general, just Americans in general, being ignorant of history as well. I mean, Betsy DeVos didn't know what an HBCU was. And before Trump became president, I'm not even sure he knew what an HBCU was. So um, really talking about the uh, legacy of HBCUs, why they're still relevant today. And also, the other the other thing is, is that you have, even though the majority of students at HBCUs are African Americans, they also service, you know, other populations as well. But they're critical when we deal with scientists, African American scientists, doctors, um, attorneys, judges, uh, public school teachers, et cetera. They're, they're, they're crucial for that. So uh, really uh, championing the successes the success stories and the legacies of HBCUs, I think, all across the country, outside of the African-American community, I think is extremely important. And I totally agree with you being 
that I have experienced attending an HBCU and then going to a PWI for graduate school. Totally two different experiences, and I had the understanding right. of why HBCUs exist and are necessary. Right. So we're going to go to a break now. Coming up, we'll be talking to attorney Ben Crump about the George Floyd case. So stay tuned. I grew up wanting a lot of activities in my neighborhood that was in close proximity. You know, my mom wasn't always there, so I didn't always have a ride to places. And, you know, you want to be able to walk down the street and get to something that's some food for your soul in your community. You know, you know, I relished, you know, the days of being in Clarksdale, Mississippi, and when I had to go out there and live with my people, they had actually black-owned corner stores. My uncle owned one. My Uncle Donald owned a cleaners and a, um, and a corner store. And he, he, um, he a city councilman down there now. And it's like, that was big for him. He was like, yo, man, you got to own something. Got to own something. His wife was named Louise. It always killed me. I, I used to call him George Jefferson. His name was Donald. Because <laughs> his wife was named Louise. And that was big to see my family own and stuff. And it just cultivated what my dad told me. My dad, he's not a lot, he didn't say a lot of good stuff, but the three things that he did give me, play chess so you'll be a thinker. You don't have to work for nobody. He told me that, I said, you don't have to work for nobody. The same energy that you put into, for somebody else, you can put that same energy into it for yourself. And then he'll go into his bill. See, they talking about black people don't want to work. Black people just don't want no job. You know what I'm we don't work for nobody else. We want our own stuff. That's it. Give me my own so I come to work every day. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he going, he going to his own spiel. And, like, I don't work for anybody. The U.S. uses more than half the world's health care resources, but we're ranked 43rd in the world for life expectancy. How did we get here? The political determinants of health include how we structure relationships, how we distribute resources, and how we administer power. What does this look like at the individual level? Take Jessica, for example. Jessica's 19. Her dad relies on mental health and substance use programs, but when these programs get cut, he becomes too difficult to live with. She leaves home. The neighborhood Jessica can afford has no grocery stores, limited public transit, and limited health care. To save money, policymakers change the water source to a more polluted river. Jessica has a minimum wage job with no health insurance at a convenience store that offers free snacks while she works, which she takes advantage of because they're free. When Jessica becomes pregnant, she can't get health insurance because pregnancy is a pre-existing condition. And she doesn't realize that the salty, fatty snacks that she eats at work are bad for her baby. Jessica gets a ride to the closest clinic for a prenatal appointment, but the doctor is rushed and rude to her. She doesn't go back. Jessica develops preeclampsia and almost dies during her son's premature birth. He's born with cognitive defects because of poor diet, contaminated water source, and lack of access to prenatal care. As he grows up, Jessica learns that her school district doesn't have the resources to accommodate her son's special needs. He drops out after eighth grade and will repeat the cycle of poverty. 
Through Jessica's story, we begin to see how social determinants, environmental determinants, healthcare determinants, and behavioral health determinants take their toll on our lives. And Jessica's story shows us how political determinants supersede personal responsibility. Equity in our policies is a process and an outcome. Change comes when we can identify political champions at all levels and figure out how our most pressing issues align with their policies. For more actionable solutions to close the health gap, read The Political Determinants of Health by Daniel E. Dawes. What's up, y'all? I'm Will Packard. Hello, I'm Bishop T.D. J. What up, Lana Well, and you are watching Rolling Martin Unfiltered. Attorney General William Barr blocked ex-Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin from pleading guilty in George Floyd's death. Now, officials say Barr rejected the plea deal because he felt like it was too soon and that the investigation into Floyd's death was in its early stages. Officials told the Associated Press that the former police officer was prepared to plead guilty to third-degree murder in George Floyd's death before Barr blocked the plea deal last year. Now, on May 25th, Bystander video captured Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck as Floyd cried out that he couldn't breathe for almost nine minutes. Floyd's death sparked outrage not just in the U.S., but around the world. Many activists called for the defunding of police departments across the nation. Chauvin is scheduled for trial March 8th. He faces charges of second-degree murder and manslaughter. The three other officers involved in Floyd's death will face trial later this year. Joining me now to continue this discussion is attorney Ben Crump. Ben Crump, thank you so much for joining me today. Now, Derek Chauvin could be behind bars right now if Barr hadn't rejected his plea deal. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, it's uh, very intriguing when you think about the fact that one of the things they said would be accomplished by him ending this plea would be that the protests, the unrest, would likely come to a halt once he was held accountable. But you remember then-President Donald Trump was using the Black Lives Matter protests all around America after George Floyd as political rhetoric, saying that Democrats uh, could not control their cities and that he was the law and order president and that he was going to rein in these Black Lives Matter protesters, which was very interesting considering the fact that when they had the protests and the illegal actions done on January 6, 2021, he wasn't that law and order president. So I think this may be bigger, this may be part of a bigger uh, dynamic where this Attorney General Barr they did not want to see the protests stop. So what you're saying, as we know, uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr, his thoughts were in line with Trump a lot of the times. And as it's come out yesterday that he rejected the plea deal, simply because he said it was too soon and that the investigation was in its infancy. But you're basically saying that there has to be a bigger picture here. And that's not at all the reason behind this. But what I'm saying is one could look at all of the dynamics at play, and we will never know what was in his mind or in his heart when he prevented the plea 
of the officer who kept his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds to be held to account uh, using the pretext excuse that the investigation was too early. Well, they convict black people all the time when there's uh, little to no investigation. What was different about this situation? The fact that you had the video that showed the crime that he committed. It was clear that he caused George Floyd uh, death and that he was the person most culpable of causing George Floyd to no longer be able to live. And the fact that he says it's too early to have him in a plea of guilty to murder is asinine. The video from day one told us that Derek Chauvin was guilty of murder. Ben, a lot of people are on the same page as you. And I know when I read this report yesterday, I was saying to myself, was the video not enough? It's clear in the video what Derek Chauvin was doing. It's clear that George Floyd was in distress and he was calling out for his mother as Chauvin had his knee on his neck for that eight minutes and 46 seconds. So it's really strange that Barr said it was too soon. And like you said, if Derek Chauvin, maybe if he were a black officer, the situation would have been different and he would have been charged and sentenced possibly for the murder of someone. Now, I was there during the George uh, Floyd protest. I was in Minneapolis on the ground reporting in May and June. And so I spoke to a lot of activists who were saying to me that they don't believe justice will be served in this case. They believe, especially where Derek Chauvin will have a separate trial from the other three officers, that he's going to get off. Now, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't ever take it for granted when a white police officer unjustifiably kills an unarmed black person in America, that it is a foregone conclusion that he will be convicted. However, I do believe this evidence is overwhelming that Derek Chauvin will be convicted of killing George Floyd. With that said, we are never, ever surprised when they enter into the intellectual justification of discrimination to further engage in the legalized genocide of colored people. So we don't take it for granted. We all have to be focused in Minneapolis on March 8th until we hear the Judge Gabba come down, finding him guilty of murder, murder, murder. Ben, before I let you go, has the family said anything in reference to this new news? I'm sorry? Has the family said anything in reference to this new news about uh, former Attorney General Barr? Uh, you know, the family has been focused on trying to prepare themselves for the trial, so I don't think they have uh, dealt with these issues at all. You can imagine the emotions they're going to go through uh, watching this trial, as all of us are going to go through. I'm certain that that video will be shown a hundred times from every different angle. And to us, George Floyd is a hashtag. To them, that is their brother, their father. I mean, remember Felonis and Rodney slept in the bed with George when they were little boys. And to watch him have to suffer like that and they not be there for him is uh, heart-wrenching. And so we just pray that they can uh, find a purpose uh, from all this pain that they're having to endure.
Yeah, it's very heartbreaking. And like you said, Ben, for all of us, even if we didn't know him, just watching that tape on repeat, it was devastating to see something like that happen to an American, right, to happen to someone like George Floyd. We will be following this case as we have been doing, and we will stay in touch. Thank you so much, Attorney Ben Crump. Thank you for covering this important matter. All right, I want to open this up to my panel. Now, Candace, what are your thoughts on uh, uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr basically rejecting this plea deal that could have landed Derek Chauvin in jail? Well, you know, even if he had landed him in jail, Derek Chauvin said, I'll go to jail for 10 years, which is not a lot of time, especially if we're going to find out down the line that he gets off a little earlier because of good behavior. So that really is nothing when you look at the life of um, George Floyd that was taken away. But certainly there had to be some strategy behind William Barr uh, rejecting this idea that he go to jail on a third degree manslaughter charge. Um, and, and certainly, I think that Ben Crump has hit the nail on the head, obviously, in that uh, Bill Barr is not someone who has great sympathy for, um, for black men. Look at what he did in lifting the federal moratorium six months, just a few months before the ending of the Donald Trump's term. He did that for a reason. He made sure that black men were put to death. And in the most... Uh, expeditious way than we've seen from any other president, lifting the moratorium. So there was more than we know that was going on behind the scenes. This wasn't Bill Barr just saying, no, I believe that, uh, you know, uh, that we should have some um, uh, more investigative work into this because Derek Chauvin, uh, Chauvin will probably be found guilty. He was doing this as part of a political scheme, just like Crump said. Uh, and like you're saying, Candace, when it comes to Bill Barr, there was an interview that kind of went viral last year where he was saying that he didn't believe police brutality was a thing. But he all and he was saying that racism wasn't a thing. But in the same breath, he talked about how systemic issues are a thing. And so essentially exactly. he was admitting that racism is a thing. And so we know that he isn't for the black community. We know that he isn't for the George Floyds uh, in this country. And so to see him reject that, of course, it does not come as a shock. Was there something else you want to say, Candace? Well, I, I was just saying that, yeah, and, and certainly we've seen that not only this, but in other contexts in terms of what they think, not only about black men, black people, the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, th this this was all part of, of a bigger scheme. And I, uh, the fact that Derek Chauvin found it just, you know, had, had the privilege in him enough to say, not only do I accept 10 years, but I would like to go to federal prison. And in addition to that, I do not want to be sued down the line for civil rights, and which is why we're dealing with William Barr in the, in the first place, because this would have been a civil rights issue that they would have had to make go away. And when we look at cases historically of people being uh, sued for police brutality and then police getting off, they generally go further and sue for their civil rights, and that's where they have their wins. So Derek Chauvin was saying, yes, give me this little sentence, and then down the line, I don't even want to be put back on the stand for civil rights. It, it really doesn't make any sense, and it all would have worked extra well in his favor. That's a good point, Candace. Now, Michael, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I talked about this uh, last night on the African History Network show, and uh, NewsOne.com has an article about it, as well as NBC News. NBC picked it up from The New York Times. So uh, I posted it also on our Facebook fan page. So some people were saying they were happy that the 
plea deal was not accepted because they want uh, Derek Chauvin, former officer Derek Chauvin, to be put on trial. I, I found it interesting that he did not want to um, face federal civil rights charges, okay? Um, we know the bar is high for federal civil rights charges. You have to prove willful intent. It probably applies here. Willful intent probably applies probably applies here. Uh, but the other thing was um, Attorney Crump, I think, made the point or somebody alluded to the point that maybe they did not want the protest to stop. If, if, if Officer Derek Chauvin had have pleaded and gone to prison, a lot of the protests out in the streets probably would have dissipated. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump juxtaposed the protests with law and order and campaigned on this, okay? And um, the Wicked Witch of the uh, uh, the Wicked Witch of the West Wing of the White House, Kellyanne Conway, basically got caught saying that uh, to the to the a certain extent the protests were good for Trump and his reelection. The protests out in the streets. Because he's saying, this is what you're going to, streets are going to look like if Biden's president. But wait a second, this is what they look like under the Trump administration. Okay? So it may have been a tool to say, we want these protests to keep going on so we could campaign on this and try to stay in office. That was good. As you said, Michael, he was doing a lot of projecting. And that just goes back to inciting the uh, Capitol insurrection, where during the debates he was saying, you know, stand by, stand back. Basically, we have to take our country back. Right. Stand by and stand, uh, uh, stand, by and stand back uh, to the Proud Boys. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Mustafa, we're going to end with you. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, we can just deal with the facts. You know, Trump was dealing with a failing economy. Trump was dealing with a pandemic. So, you know, he wanted these types of things to continue to go forward, uh, to take away from, you know, some of the core issues that he was failing on and continue to fail on until the last day that he was in office. But we should also remember the value of this show. When A.G. Barr was being uh, up for the confirmation process, we began to talk about folks really need to pay attention to him. He was a smooth operator and people, um, you know, didn't see through the veneer that he had put on and thought, well, maybe he'll take a moderate stance. Maybe he'll actually care about all communities and do the right thing. And we called out on this show, y'all pay attention, y'all get engaged. Make sure that you're reaching out to your elected officials to make sure they're asking the right questions. Um, so when we don't do that, you know, then we end up with these types of situations that have repercussions uh, and ripples that continue to follow out through the three or four years that people are in these positions. So. Um, you know, this is it, it's it's such a shame that he would interject himself into this process uh, where he would not have done it if it was a person of color. All right. I want to go now to a update in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Now in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a judge denied request to arrest and increase the bond for Kyle Rittenhouse, even after the 18 year old is accused of killing two men and wounding another during a protest held for Jacob Blake. Change his address. Prosecutors argued that Rittenhouse violated his bail by moving without updating the court. But since he has been present for every hearing while out on bail and has not violated Wisconsin law, the judge said he does not have the authority to issue an arrest warrant for Rittenhouse. Michael, this is insane. Because if this, if Kyle was another person, if Kyle were possibly a black person, this would not be allowed. First of all, he'd still be in jail. 
for what happened that night in Kenosha. Right. And then not to let uh, uh, the authorities know where he moved to, change of address because of death threats and things like that. You know, uh, I, we talked about this last Friday uh, on Roland Martin, the filter there, there, you know, the, this is Black History Month, but Black History Month takes place during white privilege year. And this is what we're seeing. This, so they're just making this stuff, uh, making this up as they go along. But um, so you know, watch whiteness work. Um, but hopefully he'll, hopefully you know, the evidence be presented in in court and he'll go to prison. But uh, they're making a lot of this stuff up as they go along. Now, Michael, as you said, um, his attorneys were stating that he needed to move, he needed to be in a safe house because of these death threats. But when do we care? about death threats that people like Kyle Rittenhouse are receiving. Why should that be a concern? Right now, you're supposed to be abiding by the laws. If the law says that you have to inform the courts that he's moving, then you have to do that. I just, this makes no sense. So, Candace, what are your thoughts on this? You know, it's interesting because they've been playing pretty legally loose with Kyle for a little bit. Lest we forget the time that Kyle went out drinking with his mother, which, by the way, he was allowed to do. You can drink even if you're underage, if you have someone that is overage. Went out drinking with his mother. And lo and behold, lucky for Kyle Rittenhouse, he, he found some white supremacists that came and serenaded him. And they threw up hate signs, and he had a great time taking pictures. If you think about somebody doing something that went against uh, the, kind of the guidelines of what their, their bail or bond is supposed to be, that was the time where we really should have seen the book throw at Kyle. But it wasn't thrown then. It wasn't thrown now. And that is a part of the process when you say that you are going to adhere to the rules that are given to you if they let you out. It's just one of those things that we've seen long before. It's not the first time that it's happened. It's not the last time that's going to happen. On the other side, if we do look at it, he has at least shown up for every hearing, which he should. I mean, this is a young kid who killed two people um, and, and left others injured. So it's something that, uh, like Michael said, we, we've seen these type of privileges in the court. It's nothing new, but it's definitely something that we have to keep our eye on. Candace, like you're saying, showing up to court is something that's a given. It's something <laughs> that you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to be rewarded or, yeah. you know, getting a pat on the back simply because you're doing what you're supposed to do. So with that said, where you were saying that the courts have been lenient, right, and they've let certain things happen, Mustafa, do you believe that he could certainly get a slap on the wrist or, or not get the maximum penalty for killing the two protesters and injuring the other one in Kenosha last summer? Well, you know, white privilege is like American Express, never leave home without it. So it translates into all kinds of magical things that would never happen uh, for folks of color. So yes, I do think that it is possible that um, he may not get convicted um, of the murders um, that he is alleged to have done, and we've all seen the videotapes. Um, so that's why people have to stay engaged. You have to keep pressure on, on the system. You've got to make sure that, that folks know that you are not going to take your eye off the ball. Um, and that you will also make sure that you utilize your vote in each of the upcoming elections um, to make sure that we get the right judges in place, to get the district attorneys in place and all the other incredibly important positions. So we're going to keep pushing. We're going to keep holding people accountable. And hopefully things will lean toward justice. I think that's important I... what you said uh, there. Did you have something to say? 
Oh, I was just going to say, uh, you know, lest we forget, too, that the reason why he's able to be out is because the same people who voted for Trump were the same people who raised the funds to get him out and get the $2 million, including Ooh, Ricky yeah. Schroeder, uh, to, right. to make sure that that happened. And what's wild, Candace—oh, uh, go ahead, Mike. I'll let you go. Go ahead. And, and, and the My Pillow guy also. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, who keeps pushing these uh, conspiracy theories that the election was stolen. Mm. Mustafa, I want to go back to a point you made about continuing to apply the pressure. Now, I uh, spoke to a couple of activists who are back in Minneapolis, and they were saying to me that they believe when it comes to Derek Chauvin and the other officers that nothing major is going to happen. Then They're not going to get the maximum penalty because they believe that that momentum that was going last summer with people demanding that uh, police departments be defunded and that these officers be sentenced and convicted, um, that that pressure has left that people are back to work, people are back to shopping, people are back to just functioning the way they were before, uh, before George Floyd was killed. So how do people continue to apply that pressure and keep that momentum? Because people have to go back to their regular lives at some point, right? People have to tend to the things that are happening immediately in front of them. But how can people, especially in the black community, continue to keep up with it so that those in power, right, so that the judges, the attorneys, law enforcement know that the black community's not given up and they haven't forgotten? Well, we have to utilize our power. You know, everyone is, is watching this show on their computer or watching it on their smartphone. So you, every day you can actually get together, you can make videos that talk about what your expectations are in relationship to what's going on there and many of these other egregious actions that continue to happen. We have to make sure that we're doing that. That pushes the media. The media follows where the energy is and where the flow is. So if we are continuing to call it out, and not just a handful of folks, but you literally have millions of folks or, or at least tens of thousands of folks uh, who are you know, calling it out each and every day, then that pushes pressure. And then the other part of it is on the economic side, by making sure that we are understanding whom is supporting these types of, uh, you know, negative things through infrastructure and through also their investments, and then hit them in the pocket. We, you know, I'm a big uh, proponent of economic boycotts, if you can get enough folks focused, and it will get people's attention, and it will keep enough pressure that hopefully then the court system does the right thing. And when it doesn't, we don't give up and we just stop and say, well, that didn't work. You continue in these movements. If you want systemic change to happen, then that means that, yeah, you got an everyday life going on, but these actions are actually impacting your everyday life. So you got to carve out a small amount of time to invest. And you got to also support shows, whether on the radio, like the folks that we have on the panel today or on this show, that every time you are supporting them so that that message continues to resonate time and time and time again. All right, Mustafa, and like you said, hitting them in the pockets, that definitely works. Now, Michael, final thoughts on this. Well, uh, I think Mustafa is, is uh, correct when we talk about economic withdrawal strategies and the different types of economic withdrawal strategies. Uh, one, we know that a lot of people 
are invested in privatized prisons and don't know it. It's through their 401k plans. It's through their pension fund plans. So uh, if we look in the uh, city of New York in June of 2017, um, city employees of the city of New York withdrew $48 million uh, from privatized prisons. They were invested through like their 401k plan and pension fund plans. Okay. Uh, there are different ways we can redistribute the pain, as Dr. King said, April 3rd, 1968. Uh, we know also know that um, uh, a lot of people are invested in uh, entertainment companies that finance a lot of these uh, right-wing uh, uh, conservative uh, politicians or, or, or et cetera. You can go to FEC.gov, Federal Elections Commission. FEC.gov, Federal Elections Commission, uh, for federal elections, U.S. House Representatives, U.S. Senate and President, you can look and see which corporations and which people donated to these particular candidates. And then you can galvanize support around different types of economic withdrawal strategies uh, against them as well. So there are things that, uh, that you know, there are things that we can do. Uh, we, we see that uh, I posted an article a couple of days ago from 2015 from CNN that talked about how um, University, uh, University of Columbia uh, divested from privatized prisons, because a lot of people don't know that universities, many universities are invested in privatized prisons as well. The students at the at the college started doing research and found out their university was invested in privatized prisons. So between private, privatized prisons, uh, between uh, entertainment companies that put out negative images of African-Americans, uh, there are different ways we can redistribute the pain. Okay, Candace, final thoughts? You know what? People should remind themselves about what happened because sometimes our memory sometimes forces us to put things on the cutting room floor that shouldn't be there. Go back and watch the police cam of Thomas Lane in the weeks leading up to this uh, trial, March 8th, of Derek Chauvin. Remind yourself about what happened. And I say Thomas Lane because it's 34 minutes and it gives you a real comprehensive view all the way to George Floyd is in the truck being forced to stay alive with a machine. And often we don't see that video. But we can't forget, and you can't forget if you watch it. And the more you watch it, the more that you will find yourself involved and force yourself to understand the law. Because a lot of things happen and, and don't happen because we don't know the right questions to ask and we don't have people involved and understand the, the, what's going on to even formulate a question. So the more informed you come, the better. I went to the store and someone said to me when I checked out, would you like to make a donation to the NAACP for Black History Month? And I said, now come again. What did you say? Because that's never happened. No one's ever in my years while I was at the mall asked me if I wanted to make a donation to the NAACP while checking out at, at a store that everybody's heard of. So, I mean, it's going to be little by little, but things will change. All right, thank you so much. I, Candace Kelly, legal analyst, Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, former senior advisor for environmental justice at EPA, and Michael Imotep, host of the African History Network show. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. Now, coming up next, I'll show Thanks. you an interview Roland did with The Temptations co-founder, Otis Williams, about the late, great Mary Wilson. We'll be right back. We all know who's to blame for the deadly act of sedition at the Capitol. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. Trump couldn't win honestly, and when he couldn't get the courts to overturn the election for him, he tried to incite a violent mob to do it by force. You'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength, and you have to be strong. Senate Republicans, you swore an oath. Now it's time to do your duty. Reclaim your party. Vote to convict Donald Trump. He's guilty.
Think about the fact that 2043, we are going to be a nation that's majority people of color. I've really focused on this a lot on television, on radio, and my speeches. That, that, that my focus is, is trying to prepare us to have demographic power while also having educational, economic power at the same time. Because there's nothing worse than having demographic numbers. But then you still don't have that economic power, that political power, and education power. Well, you know, you and I, and I think most people know and understand that education is what we've got to impress on all of our people. We've got to help people to understand that if you want a decent quality of life, if you want the kind of quality of life where you are not having to worry about your food and your nutrition and, you know, being able to pay your bills or buy a house, then you've got to become educated. The more education you have, the larger the paycheck is. And, of course, we've got to be involved in entrepreneurship, taking the talent that we have to create businesses. And there's a lot of opportunity for that. I'm Bill Duke. This is Diala Riddle. And you're watching Roland Martin, unfiltered. Stay woke. All right, let's go to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the multi-million dollar black-owned testing site called MCI Diagnostic Center is headquartered. Now, the center, which opened in November of last year, it offers national laboratory testing. The center is capable of turning around results in a 24-hour time period, which is vital during a pandemic where the U.S. has seen more than 476,000 deaths and 27.4 million confirmed cases of COVID-19. Earlier, Roland spoke with Colleen Payne Neighbors, the testing site's founder, to discuss more. Take a look. All right, Colleen, let's, let's talk about this here. So when we look at what's been happening around the country, we were promised, you know, massive testing in parking lots and Walmart and Walgreens and all these things. Uh, and we had Dr. Nunez Smith, who co-chairs the Biden uh, COVID task force, who said that we still are not where we need to be when it comes to uh, COVID testing in this country. Uh, just you know, as, a, as, a, as someone who owns a facility, just your thoughts on where we stand when it comes to COVID testing. We are, uh, Roland, uh, we are so far behind on testing. And now I think part of the issue is, is that we are seeing what we call COVID fatigue, uh, which means that a lot of people believe that uh, COVID is not as severe or as uh, frightening as it was. So therefore, we're not being tested. And the ratio of asymptomatic people are even greater. So um, we look at our drive-through and our sites that we do on a daily basis and realize that we're not touching half of the population that we should be touching. That's a huge issue still continuing in this country today. And obviously, African-Americans are impacted. Uh, and we don't have a lot of African-Americans uh, who are leading places uh, where they do actually do uh, COVID testing. Uh, how, uh, so talk about that, what, is li what, is, like, what, what it has been for you and your company in this space. So being on the ground as being one of the only, uh, one of the largest African-American facilities in the country and being on the ground from day one, we were on the task force for Dr. Bricks uh, because we had the technology. We've been all over this country testing. And the greatest disproportion that we see 
is African Americans. I can I can look at our lines and I can I can stand up and I can say as a uh, a laboratory owner who is of African African American descent, I know that African Americans are not coming to our site. They're not being tested. Um, and we we what we've attempted to do is we've attempted to be in the spaces. We've attempted to go to the churches. We uh, locations in the underserved areas to support. And it's getting out that word that we still need to be tested. I mean, I we cannot emphasize that enough in this country for people of color. When you talk about getting that information out, I mean, that's I was I was texting Dr. Ebony Hilton, and we, and I was sharing with her what we have been seeing. Uh, where you've had these uh, folks giving out even the vaccines and uh, and uh, places where the predominantly African-American and largely whites in the lines. And she said, she said, I don't believe that this is really about um, folks not wanting to take the vaccine, she said, but even knowing, having the information on where it's actually happening. Um, same thing, when it, when it comes to testing, uh, do you think it's because we just simply did not do a major, major information effort. And so we had Donald Trump and his folks leading this whole thing and just, oh, don't wear a mask or, or downplaying it, that it just simply caused so many people uh, not, not to focus on it and did not truly marshal the federal resources to make this a national emergency. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this started from the top. This could have been so much uh, better ran from the administration standpoint. And when you look at all of the states scrambling for a unity plan, we don't have it. None of the school systems can open up correctly just because the the, the head of the, the country didn't give us a plan. This was easy. This could have all been aborted um, had we had the correct information from the top. So now what you have is every single state trying to devise its own plan uh, school systems trying to devise a plan with no direction, no guidance from the uh, from the White House. So a lot of this, a lot of what we've seen and have seen and have gone through, could have one hundred percent been avoided had we had direction and we had guidance and we explained to the, per the the population that this was much more serious than what we're seeing now. And today, I don't think that there's anyone in this country that is untouched by death or loss with COVID. It is just, you know, and now we're so um, immune to people dying of COVID that it is happening so fast that we don't even get to react. We just go, oh, you know, there's no sadness to this and we're losing people at an alarming rate. It is incredible that we're still facing this and now we're losing more people. Uh, I think it took us maybe months for me to personally see someone die in my own personal family, but now those deaths are coming more rapidly to most people. And what we see here in our uh, laboratory, same thing. We, we're testing people over and over and you come in one day and we test you and you know two days later you're coming back and the next day you're in ICU. So it, it's, it's very, very critical. It's very critical. I cannot express how critical this is um, to continue to get us tested, but I also want to express that it is not so much as to get us continually tested as we need to be in the conversation for the vaccine. That is the most important thing that I can express here today. And when you talk about um, 
being in, being a black laboratory, the reality is having that that connection with the community is also important because for African Americans it also comes down to trust. Uh, and and that frankly has hasn't been easy uh, as y'all have had to contend because look we're dealing with big business we're dealing with companies uh, that this is a multi-billion dollar uh, industry when you talk about PPE when you start talking about masks we start talking about testing and vaccines we're talking billions of dollars and there are very few African Americans who are involved. Absolutely. So if you notice that when all of this first started. Um, the big companies, um, they, they, they've gone after everybody else. And they initially, some of the larger laboratories were sending, you know, five and 10,000 kits to some of our underserved inner city uh, communities. But the problem was they were just throwing money and throwing kits that the government was paying for. But unfortunately, they didn't have anyone that would go to our communities and provide that service. So MCI Diagnostics, we took foot. We, we saw it. We were on the ground in Atlanta for almost 60 days uh, straight. Uh, we, of course, are based in Dallas, Texas. So we've, we've supported our communities here. But the biggest thing is, is that we don't have enough people. And the big laboratories, now they're throwing testing to our communities. But see, when we needed you most, you didn't come. And now that the money is kind of like at the end of it, now there's, they're getting with our leaders, our African-American leaders, and saying, we want to come and test the community. But the issue becomes, you needed to test us when you were testing everyone else. And so what I have been fortunate enough to do in our community here is that I've been fortunate enough to teach a number of African-American churches um, how to self-collect with their ministries and be able to send those tests back to us so that we can test, so that we can get African-American churches back open. Because I think that the biggest support for us in saving us at this moment is to have our, our church leaders advise us testing the vaccine. Those are things that are most important in this season for us. What, um, obviously, this new administration, uh, have from your vantage point, um, have you seen... Uh, a change, if you will? Have you seen in the last three weeks a, a really change in, in how things have been going when it comes to uh, uh, dealing with COVID? Honestly, I would like to say that we have a lot of conversations around COVID. We have a lot of conversations around the vaccine. But unfortunately, we still don't have the vaccine in any underserved area, most of our underserved areas. We do not have enough people of uh, color administering those vaccines. And I can tell you from our own perspective that the roadblocks that are put into being a provider, 99% of uh, healthcare professionals that are of African-American descent will never be a provider to carry the vaccine uh, from HL7 interfaces to being connected to the health departments, to data loggers, to storage. Those are all obstacles that 100% face, that we face. And so even though the African-American community can support the African-American community, we they have made it so difficult for you to uh, qualify as a provider. So I'm a provider, but we're still fighting in the state of uh, Texas and Oklahoma uh, to get the vaccine. We are very fortunate. We have a laboratory in Atlanta that we are um, being able to provide services there, but 
they've made it so difficult for people of color that have that do not own a laboratory, and most of us do not, uh, to uh, hold and carry the uh, the vaccine, refrigeration uh, certificates of uh, compliance for uh, the refrigeration. No one has that. So how do we support our communities? How do we reach the, that level of population? It's going to be very difficult for us to do that. We're one laboratory, and we're trying to support as many as we can. But then you have to give us the vaccine because people of color trust people of color. I look like you. My mother looks like you. My sisters look like you. And I can show up and say that what we're going to do is going to benefit you. And then we've done a lot of testing ourselves to, to look at the vaccine. Um, I personally have had the vaccine. I've had my first and second injection as a healthcare professional. And so I was able to do a test on me after I got the first vaccine to make sure that I could have this conversation. Uh, we were not given the vaccine. I can test that. And I too now have antibodies that are growing. I do believe in herd immunity, which means that We've been on the ground collecting for almost a year. And uh, a great 90% of my staff has never had COVID. So we've been exposed. But I also wanted to be able to have the conversation to say that I took the vaccine. I took first and second. I tested me each and every time after uh, an inject, um, the first injection to look to see if I actually had COVID or if I was injected so that I could stay, say to the people of color, we are not being injected with COVID. And then the biggest thing is in this season is once you have the vaccine, you want to make sure that we have antibodies growing inside the body, that it gives us that level of protection with the, um, with the vaccine, Pfizer or Moderna. So when you say you believe in herd immunity, your folks have been exposed, did they have it? When you, or, so when you say exposed, what does that mean? So we, so a lot of times when people have been in the house for uh, an extended period of time because everyone was kind of afraid to come out, we've been on the ground since day one. We've been exposed. We, we've contacted. We've collected. We've collected in multiple states. We've collected around the nation. Um, uh, MCI has been in D.C., Maryland, Atlanta, Georgia, Houston, so uh, North Carolina, Florida. So we've been in a lot of places and. Uh, herd immunity grows when uh, you one, one you have that exposure, and we've had no one on my team except for uh, two people out of uh, the families and the people, the lives that we cover, that have ever had COVID. And one of them was because someone went to Branson, Missouri. So herd immunity is uh, being exposed and being. It's sort of like having the flu. Sometimes you're around people that have the flu, but you never get it. And that's what this country is trying to attempt to do is uh, by getting so many people vac uh, vaccinated that we start developing herd immunity. I, you know, I, I, I could say that I got tired. I, I've seen a lot with this virus, too much, things that no one person should ever see, we have seen. So, you know, it got really scary. I, I was one of those people early on that said that I didn't, uh, I didn't think that I wanted the vaccine. A lot of healthcare, healthcare professionals are saying that, but you have to take it because otherwise we are, um, it's, a, it's a form of genocide for African-Americans and people of color if we do not stand in those lines to take the vaccine. All right. That's it for us. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you.
Let's go to our Education Matters segment. Due to the pandemic, kids across the nation are attending school remotely and parents aren't necessarily thrilled with how their kids are being taught. Some parents have removed their kids from public schools and placed them in private institutions. Some parents have gone as far as moving to different states so that their kids can attend school in person. This is great for those who can afford it, but for those who usually can't are those in black and Hispanic communities. So joining me to discuss this further is Sarah Carpenter, executive director of the Memphis Lift, Dr. Howard Fuller, civil rights activist and education reform advocate, Delvin Champagne, school choice advocate, and Margaret Fortune, president and CEO of Fortune School. Now, Howard, I would like to start with you. Would you say that public schools are failing minority students? And is Biden administration, is the Biden administration the answer? Uh, Well, let me answer the second part of it first. Uh, No administration is the answer, least of all the Biden administration. And I say that because Biden, to me, has essentially sold out to the teachers' union. And as long as I've been at this, I can say for certainty that anybody who has sold out to the teachers union, whatever policies that they pursue in general, are not gonna be in the interest of our students. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that this issue of our kids going back to school and not going back to school is not a simple answer. And the reason why it's not simple is because the first thing I think we have to be concerned about is the health of not just our kids, but the kids' families, the people who serve meals, the people who drive buses, all of the black people who have all of a sudden become essential workers and have had their health put at risk so the rest of us can be on Zoom. So even though I understand the difficulty of making that decision around sending kids back to school, I don't want us to sit here and think that it's a simple issue of y'all just need to go back to school. And because... I'm saying, and I'll say it very clearly, until it is clear that it is safe for all of the people involved for our kids to go back to school, we need to be very leery of that. And the one thing that I know is that schools that serve poor black and brown kids, they're not likely to have all of the resources that they need to make sure that it's safe to go back to school. Now, Howard, what you're saying, a lot of teachers would agree with you. I'm not sure if you saw this picture was circling around of a Chicago teacher, a Chicago public school teacher who was sitting outside of the school building in the snow because he felt like it wasn't safe for him to teach inside of the building. I think he had just had a newborn child. And so essentially he wanted to protect his health, the health of his child, the health of his wife, and felt like it wasn't something, he didn't want to put their health in jeopardy. But a lot of people are concerned, right? A lot of people are concerned about their health, but it's also the students, right? Students right now who come from, let's say, Baltimore City Public Schools, where I taught, where they weren't learning what they were supposed to be learning in the first place. They were already behind. And now they're on Zoom, and they're even further behind than where they should be. So, Margaret, I'm going to address you. What's the solution? What needs to be done? There are pros and cons to both sides here. I think it's the mix of the politics and the public health facts. And I'm in a state, California, where uh, most of the schools have been shut down. 
uh, you have a, a, a coordination of the big city superintendents and the teachers union to say that we're not going back to school until everybody is vaccinated. The governor, Governor Newsom, is facing a, a recall that is in part fueled by the inability to get schools back open. But as a, a, a school um, leader myself, I run a school system with 2,300 kids, 65% of them are African-American. Uh, opening and closing school is no simple matter. And what we've done, at least in this state, state is to put schools in a position where they open up, they close back down. There's lack of clarity about what the direction this, that the state is going in and that the county is going in. And yet you have schools that have put serious safety precautions in place to make returning to school uh, safe for kids and for teachers. Um, for example, uh, universal testing programs, um, you know, uh, making sure that the, the heating and air conditioning units are hospital grade to, to kill infection. Uh, kids being, uh, you know, having the temperature checks at the door, um, training around uh, uh, contact tracing. So I, I think that um, what's happening in our state is that there's a, a ramp up in terms of vaccination, in terms of identifying where vaccinations are going to happen, but we don't actually have the vaccine. So uh, the, the, the last thing I'll say on this is that there's a timing issue. Um, Biden has set as a priority to get schools re reopened within his first 100 days. Well, his 100 days ends at about you know, near the end of April. So are we going to open up schools just to shut them back down for the summer? Uh, I think that what is likely to happen in places where schools are not open is that schools are going to be gearing up for opening in the fall. And I think that we should be fully prepared to open in the fall, uh, whether that's hybrid uh, or in-person socially distanced. Delvin, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts? Do you believe that kids should be going back to school now or we should wait? Delvin, are you on mute? Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, so here in Maryland, um, the governor just gave a um, pretty much a mandate for schools to open back up on um, on by, by uh, March 1st. But I think that um, that schools, that that the local schools should partner with the state and with, and they should try to be as accommodating to students, especially students with special needs, um, IEP students, students with um, English as a second language, and we call them farm free and reduced meal students. I think that it's important that we focus on those students first because they are the ones that have the lowest proficiency and um, they're at more, they're more at risk for uh, lower outcomes um, going, going forward. Sarah, what are your thoughts when it comes to especially minority kids who are already behind their white counterparts? And right now, when it comes to using Zoom, it's really not functional for a lot of schools and for a lot of students where they may not, for example, have the best Wi-Fi. Or I know when I was teaching last year, some of the students, they weren't required to have on their cameras or to participate in class. So you don't know whether the kid is there, if they're asleep, they're somewhere else. You don't know if they're retaining the information. And so obviously in person, 
could be a lot better. But right now, obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic. But what do you think should be done in the immediate? Well, we surveyed, like, over a 1,000 parents, and we, we, we believe in parents' choice. And the day our district announced that they're going to open back up March the 1st, but we are demanding a crystal clear safety plan. And I want to piggyback on what Margaret said, that, you know, we got to have the safety measures in place. I, it's tough on parents. We talk to parents every day. And it's, it's, it's parents getting frustrated. The children are getting frustrated. But we want our children to be safe because we know that COVID have hit the black and brown community in a major way. And personally, it hit my family also. So I I know my boys are ready to go back to school because they don't want to be at home with grandma because I'm always like, get online. Are you online? What class you in? And I'm on them, you know. So it's we work for parents and we surveyed our parents and they want to make the choice if they want to send their children back to school. So that's what we push for to let the parents make the choice if they want to send their children back to school. But me, myself... I don't know about my grandchildren going back to school and coming back to me because I have underlying issues. Okay, and like you, Sarah, a lot of people are in that condition. And like you said, COVID has hit the minority communities, the black and brown communities the most. And safety does come first. And a lot of people are saying Biden trying to send kids back to school in his first 100 days is a big mistake, but we'll just have to wait and see what happens. So thank you so much. Again, that's Sarah Carpenter, Executive Director of the Memphis Lift, Dr. Howard Fuller, civil rights activist and education reform advocate, Delvin Champagne, school choice advocate, and Margaret Fortune, President and CEO of Fortune School. We will continue this conversation. All right, let's take a look now at an interview Roland did with The Temptations co-founder, Otis Williams, who remembers the late, great Mary Wilson, who was the co-founder of The Supremes. Wilson died suddenly in her Las Vegas home on Monday at the age of 76. We used to do a lot of record hops, and then that's when we started seeing Mary, you know. Uh, well, that's when we saw Barry Gordy, and he had heard our records come on, and he said... I like you guys' record. Come see me. I'm starting my uh, company. And as fate would have it, we had a falling out with Janet Matthews because she sold a master to a larger company in New York, came back, and had uh, she was just counting out a lot of money, a lot of money. And I said, oh, wow, that's great, Janet. She said, yeah, you guys will be able to be heard all over the country now because we got national distribution. And I said, okay, great. And I said, well, don't we get a royalty or some kind of statement? Because I wrote, uh, come on. And she said, no, you're not getting any of this money. This is my money. And uh, so I said, well, fine, we'll leave. And at the time, I was must have been about 18, say about that. She said, well, if you leave, I'll take the, the, the car that I got you guys, the name and the uniform. And my retort was, fine. You can do that. We young, we'll start off somewhere else. And I remember I kept Mr. Gordy's car. And I called, and Mickey Stevens was the A&R man. And I said, uh, Mickey, uh, Barry asked us to come over if we should leave where we are. And we did. And uh, shortly after we signed with Barry, uh, that's when uh, I started seeing Mary, Diana, Florence, and she wasn't Diana then, she was just Diane. And Florence, uh, Mary, 
Barbara, and uh, uh, who did I leave out? Florence married Barbara and uh, Diane. Yeah. Uh, Florence. Yeah, Flo, yeah, Flo, and, yeah, Flo, Mary, uh, Diane, and Barbara. It was for them for a minute. Yeah. But then Barbara decided to leave because I guess she wanted to start a family. So we would do shows together. You know, the, the, the Diana, uh, rather the Supremes, and my group was the Temps at the time. And let me tell you about Florence Ballard. See, Barry had good ears on him, you know, because we used to do these cabarets, and at the time, Ray Charles was hot with Night and Day. Night and Day, that part with Madge, Mar uh, Margie Hendrick, whatever her name was, she would do this, baby. She would score all that. So when um, Flo did that part, the people at the cabaret or wherever we were performing would fall out because Flo could deliver it, and she had that kind of voice. And, but when they signed with Motown, evidently Barry must have heard another kind of thing in, in Diana's voice and said, you be the lead singer because Diana had that kind of voice that was uh, not that R&B, but... Uh, I guess to sell records, she had that kind of voice that blacks and whites could understand and relate to. And that's how she became uh, the lead singer for the Supremes. So we have that kind of history uh, that we used to do record hops and cabarets together and just, uh, you know, uh, be in the same studio. We'd come out of the studio, they'd be going in, or vice versa. So it goes all the way back to the early 60s and naturally doing the Motortown Review uh, tours and then. Uh, we did the um, Barry Decay show in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, so we did quite a few big heavyweight shows together. So it was a bonding that uh, the Supremes and us had way back then. And Barry, even after the Supremes uh, no longer were together, you know, we always stayed in touch. And uh, I really moved uh, when I went back to my bedroom. She had sent me a card earlier, uh, I guess about a couple of months ago, and it was a, a, a Christmas card. And at the end of it, she said, Otis, I am so proud of you, what you have been able to do. And I sat there and I read that card and I started crying. Mm. And all I understand. And of course, I always would, when we were told, uh, either when I would text her or whatever, I would always end up saying, so and so and so and so and so to my Mary. And one time she said, Yes, I am Mary. You know, and so that was our connection. And I, I uh, was laughing when I saw the picture of her and I standing uh, at the opening of my play on Broadway. And so whatever I had on, Mary was funny. She looked at me and she said, ah, show look good. Who's your woman? Where's your woman? I said, come on, Mary, you, we've been knowing each other all these years. And we ain't never hit on each other. She said, well, I don't know about you the name. You show look good. And uh, so I'm thinking about all those kind of times. So. We just had a wonderful time and wonderful history together. So I'm sad uh, that, uh, you know, it had to come the way, you know, I heard because uh, I was told that they had to break a door down to get into a house, you know. So um, so we're still waiting to find out uh, more. But I hear they're going to have a private, uh, ser uh, you know, session. I had talked to um, um, Eddie Levert, and he said that, she that she has some stents placed in in December. Um, yeah, that, what? that she had some stents placed. Um, she had surgery oh. in December. That's what that's what he that's what he told me. Right, that's what I heard. 
Yeah, I said, oh, I didn't know that because I just found that out, you know, uh, not too long ago, rather fairly recent, because I said, oh, no, she never did mention that to me, you know, during the times that we talked and uh, with text, you know, she would call and see, I just called and see how you're doing. I said, oh, I'm just in here chilling, you know, so, um, but she never mentioned that she had strength. Well, it was interesting. Go ahead. Clear. No, I was just saying, uh, the guy that used to sing with us, Larry Braggs, he had stint put in his, uh, I guess his heart or something, you know, but he's doing all right. So anyway, uh, what you thought to say, interesting, what? Well, it was interesting because, uh, you know, she, uh, we ran it last night. She dropped a, vi- she dropped a YouTube video that uh, she recorded just a couple of days before she passed. And matter of fact, Shirley Ralph did a video and said she had talked to her the night before. And, you know, one of the things that I said last night is that just like, you know, with Cicely Tyson, I said, hey, um, you know, uh, folk, you know, they, they worked up until the last second. The video she dropped, she was talking about the new music she was releasing this month with Universal. Uh, it was a, like, like a four and a half minute video. And it was just amazing because, you know, she was just smiling and she was talking about, you know, all of these uh, things she was doing in Black History Month. And she said, OK, folks, I'm going to do a video later to share with you all what I'm doing the rest of the month. And then uh, that was uh, that was the last video she posted. Wow. Yeah. Well, we just lost a beautiful spirit, you know, so I wanted to call and give you a little insight. Uh, going up together and knowing that she was just her and Diane and Florence. That was just one block from the building that I live in uh, downtown. It's amazing. It's it's amazing. You talk about growing up. You talk about y'all growing up and, and being near each other. And and I think that's something that a lot of people just just don't don't realize just the proximity when Aretha Franklin's funeral, Smokey Robinson talked about that as well. Uh, just just yeah. how s- there was so much of this talent in just a few blocks living right. next to each other. That's right. Because Baird Strong and I, and we lived uh, across the street from uh, one another when uh, we moved from downtown Detroit to the north end of Detroit on Custard, uh, Custard between Bruce and John R. And I would see Barrett, uh, you know, even way back then. But little did uh, we know that we would have a connecting uh, history, you know, later on down the line when we were at Motown. Because, uh, you know, he had his first big hit was uh, Money. And uh, that Barry and uh, Jane Bedford wrote. You know, and then next thing I know, he came off the road and started writing uh, uh, songs and uh, some of our biggest hits, you know, Barrett and Norman Strong uh, wrote. So, uh, yeah, Detroit is just loaded with talented people, you know, especially back then. And I would imagine now. The thing that I, I think that it was just, uh, I, you know, and I've done so many interviews with folks and uh, it, it's, it's just even as you reflect now, I mean, just when you think about just all of all of y'all in that small building, everybody living their dream. Um, and, and, you know, and just all of those down moments, just laughing and talking and, and, and and it had to be something y'all talk, you talking to Mary and the Supremes about their vision and what they want to do in the future. Y'all sharing it with them. And all of those things happened where y'all became, uh, some of the most celebrated acts in American history, uh, and unknown across the world. Yeah. You know, I've always said, and it's, uh, I really believe it even more so. Uh, I tell people Motown records 
was no happenstance. God and his infinite wisdom brought that little two-story family flat that housed all of those talented people, songwriters, producers, musicians, all the people that worked at Motown to help Motown flourish. He brought that company uh, during the 60s, which has been noted as the most tumultuous decade within the last hundred years. But yet, here come this com company that created this music that helped in a whole lot of ways bring people together to help galvanize us because we were a very disruptive uh, country and uh, and everything during the 60s. And uh, I never will forget that, uh, when we attempted on a world tour and we were in Hong Kong and I ran into three uh, soldiers and that was 75, the war, Vietnam just finished in 74, 75. And they stopped me and they said, Mr. Williams, we don't mean to bother you, but we got to tell you something. I said, well, man, you know, I'm going to listen to you guys because y'all were over there doing what we couldn't do. He said, when we were in the jungle fighting, putting our lives on the line, and fortunately we would be able to get back to the base, he said, the first thing we would ask, put on Motown Records, put on The Temptations, put on The Supremes. He said, you guys, that company helped make us, helped to make us through some very, very bad times. And as they were telling me this, they were standing there crying. And I started welling up too because it was so emotional to know, to hear these uh, guys talk about what Motown's music did. And he said, we just had to get back to the world. And that's what they referred to as America, the world. And he said, I just wanted to let you guys know Motown, you know, was so important in our survival that we had to get back. So uh, we stood there and chit-chat just a little bit longer, and then they went on, and I stood there, and I said, wow, you mean to tell me Motown music is that profound, that guys laying their lives on the line, when they get back to the base, the first thing they want to hear is some music are by the Motown, Temptation, Supremes, Marvelous, Stevie Wonder, Miracles, Marvin Gaye. So... That company was no happenstance. God brought that company along at that point in time for a very special reason. <clears throat> I got to ask you. Like I've always said. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Like you said, like I always said. Uh, that music, uh, look, I just got a uh, plaque from my head to send it off to the registry of um, about music. And Motown, I mean, my girl is over 50 years old. I would have never imagined that that record, and then when I heard it, when Smokey wrote it for us, I just said, uh, okay, another great song. And uh, let me cut this here down so I can. Um, when we recorded My Girl, it was another great song by Smokey. And, uh, you know, we went in and recorded. Paul Reiser added the strings and horns on it. And then I came out of the studio and came back into the control room where, as uh Smokey was sitting there at the control room uh, at the desk. And I said, Smokey, I don't know how big a record this is going to become, but I said, well, this is going to be a hit. Motown released My Girl December of 1964. February of 1965, we were at the Apollo. Barry sent a telegram saying, congratulating us that my girl was number one 
and uh, the Beatles sent us a telegram. The Supremes sent us a telegram, and, and uh, uh, the, uh, the owner of the Copa Cabana, they all sent uh, telegrams congratulating us about my, my girl being a hit. I never would imagine that that song now is looked upon as a standard. One day we were out somewhere, me and my lady, and I heard Tony Bennett. I'm a big fan. I said, I sound like Tony Bennett. And I'm listening and I said, wait a minute. Is he singing my girl? <laughs> he was singing my girl. Now, you know, when you get uh, Tony Bennett singing my girl, that song has arrived. Somebody told me, he's the oldest. Motown, I mean, my girl, now is a standard. It ain't just another R&B song or whatever. He said, no, 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 that's the standard. I said, yeah, I guess you're right. And anytime the great Tony Bennett uh, singing my girl, I said, there it is. So, uh, but yeah, Motown is something special, you know, like I said, to house all of those very talented songwriters, producers, talented people, and the, uh, the, all the people that help make Motown the secretaries, the, the, the engineers, the janitors, all of everybody that, uh, uh, factored in to making Motown uh, uh, the company it is. And when we are on stage, there's a sit-down session that uh, we do. And I said, no, nah, I'm not knocking the CBSs, the ABC, uh, uh, Columbia, or none of those great companies. I said, but there will never, ever be a company like Motown. And, uh, and I will lay out the rule, uh, the reason why, because Motown taught us we have to go to school. No other country, uh, company in the record business ever had a division called artist development. And we had to go there to be taught how to get on stage the right way, how to come off stage the right way, how to carry yourself when you're out in the public. Because Miss Edwards would tell us, and that was Barry's older sister, she said, they're going to watch you more off stage than on stage. So we said, really? Why is that? They said, they know what you're supposed to do on stage. They want to see what kind of person you're going to be when you're not on stage. I never forgot that. And then she said, Four things I want you guys to always remember not to get into any conversation about. Don't talk to people about politics, religion, money, or who they are making love to. And I said, you're right, because if you open up that to the public, you could kill your career. So so we had to go to school to be taught certain things, and I'm so glad because uh, it has helped us to... Uh, be around all these years and all the guys that I've had in my uh, group, I've had to tell them that, man, don't be trying to talk to nobody about what the, those four things, because if you do, uh, you subject be in a whole lot of trouble, all the temps, you know, so they, they just had a whole lot of wonderful things that other, any other company, they're not going to uh, provide yep. because that means you would have to hire somebody to have that kind of knowledge to teach us that. Uh, we'd have to be an, an artist development sometime at 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, in the morning, and at 6 o'clock in the evening. You talking talk about being in school when they say, all right, Charlie Atkins will be our choreographer and Maurice King, our vocal coach. All right, that's it for the day, Tim. Five guys would be running out of there, like five Jesse Owens getting out of there because they would drop <laughs> <beat us. laughs> I, I, you. It paid off. Yeah, huh? I got to ask you this here. Everybody talks about that one line from the movie uh, David Ruffin. Oh, this ain't nobody paying you to sing. Last night. Let I, me tell you. Uh-huh. Go, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go uh, ahead. Leon was at the play in New York. Uh, and uh, he told me, 
he improvised it. That was not written in the script. And I said, uh-huh. I said, well, I got you now. I said, Leon, take a look. Look around you. The place where the play was, the, all the people were standing up just shouting my name. I said, what you going to say now, Leon? He said, you got me. You so got so, me. so David on. Ruffin never said that to you? No. Wow. No. See, no. people think Leon, so. So Leon, obviously, he took he took he took license. Uh, yeah, he took liberties. Uh, hold on, hold on, let me see. Hold on, hold on. No, no, that that never was written in. He took uh, liberties and just added that. Because because basically. It, it sounded like something Ruffin would say. <laughs> so no. he, but no. he, he, here's a, oh, yeah. here's a thing that, so, so now that we know Ruffin never said that to you, but here's what I still think is important. Cause last night uh, I asked in Vogue this uh, when I was talking about Mary Wilson, because, right. because Barry decided, uh, you know, he was going to you know put Diana Ross out front. I said, but a group survives because of the glue. Otis, you there? I'm here. I'm listening. Okay, sorry. A group survives because of the glue. No one person makes a group. And the reality is the temptations would not exist today if if you didn't do what you did. Mary, everybody says, was the glue behind the Supremes. So just because yeah. somebody might be out front doesn't mean that's that right. they are the most important player. That person who might be, who's not out front, could be the the, the glue that keeps it all together. Get it dead on the head. You know, I've been told that countless times, Barry Gordon, Shelley Berger, Charlie Atkins, Harvey Fuqua, people that was not connected with Motown, they would say, Otis, if it wasn't for you, and you've had some of the damnedest singers around you, there wouldn't be no temptation if, if it wasn't for you. you. You know, you are the glue of the temps. And uh, and when we started out singing, I was one of the lead singers. When we were at the distance, and even at the, our second record, um, Check Yourself, that's me starting it out. By and by, you knew that you make me cry. Yeah, so I was uh, one of the lead singers, but my thinking has always been I, I wasn't hung up that, well, I got to be the lead singer. I put it together. My thing was, I wanted us to make it. They weren't making any more money than me. We were all getting paid the same money. So it wasn't like, what? You didn't pay? Man, bring me a song to me sing a lead on it. Then if it's going to be like that. No. All five of us were getting the same kind of money. You know, so, but uh, Maurice King, he said, oh, you got some talented. Now, Maurice King was our vocal coach. And Charlie Atkins, our choreographer. And they would pull me to the side. He said, you got some talented guys out. He said, but they wouldn't last. This group wouldn't last if, if you wasn't there. But, 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 is said, it, but isn't it also important, though? Isn't it also important? Isn't it the lesson for people also, Otis, is that you said remove ego. And your deal is, bruh, go do your thing. Because if you right. if you making all of us get rich, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah, that's been my attitude. I mean, I hate it, uh, losing a David, Eddie, or Paul had uh, health, 
uh, and Melvin, you know, but the the, uh, the Dennis's, the Ollie Woodson, I've had some of the baddest singers uh, in the business around me, you know, and they have helped make the Temptations one of the most imitated, creative love group in the world. Yesterday, I was talking with this young man, uh, the sister called, and she said, oh, this, I, I have to look up his name. She said, it's a man, black man that runs or either owns, I think she said, owns a hundred million dollar business. He loves you, Otis. He loves the temptation. I said, I said, oh, really? She said, she got him on the phone and I'm holding on. And he was talking to somebody else important. And she, he told her, uh, I'll call you right, right back. I got to talk to Otis Williams. He's on the other, other uh, uh, line. And I'm sitting there listening. So it makes me say, Geez, I mean, I just do what I do. I mean, I, I don't think, uh, you know, if you cut me out, I bleed. Uh, I put my pants leg on one leg at a time, and I damn sure don't levitate. But people look at me in a whole other kind of way in that respect. You know, anytime you got a brother that's a hundred meters. <laughs> yeah. So, what you living about? I think that's hilarious. I mean, because but again, though, it's 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 a sign of respect. It's a sign of a, a great appreciation. And I think that yeah. that's it's the it's the same thing when um, what In Vogue said last night when, when they when they she, she, they were like schoolgirls when they met Mary Wilson. Um, right. Uh, Shirley Ralph talked about it. Um, and 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 again for for the for you. Um, that, you know, growing up with somebody, seeing someone, uh, and then obviously that they, they go from elder to ancestor. Uh, I, I do have to ask you this here. One of the things that I, that every time I met her, she, she always had this amazing smile. And of course she always she cracked did. me up because in every photo yeah. she was like, no, hold up. I got to get the cleavage in. Uh, she always cracked yeah. me up. She's like, I got to get the, I got to yeah. get the cleavage in the photo. I said, Mary, you are hilarious. Yes, she is. <laughs> Yeah, she sure was. And you know what? When I once the play gets back uh, on Broadway, because you know with this pandemic, everything is shut down on Broadway. And there's a part where and Melvin loved him some Mary Wilson. You know, but she would she liked Melvin, but not in the sense of them getting together. So there's a scene in the play where uh, uh, they, they do this scene, and then uh, Mary come walking across the stage, and Joanne, who plays Melvin, he said, "Well, I see you, cause." I see me some Miss Mary Wilson, and they walk off together, and the audience would laugh. That's going to have another kind of hit now that Mary's no longer, you know, here. You know, so it's going to make people think of Mary in a loving, fun way. But, uh, you know, but uh, every time I saw that, I said, yeah, Melvin really liked him some uh, Mary Wilson, but she uh, she just liked Melvin as a friend, you know. So, yeah, you know, when I start to think back about Mary, beautiful spirit. Uh, I know one time when the, the Supremes are really rolling real good, I think the street is uh, called Waverly in the northwest section of Detroit. Diane, Mary, and Florence, they bought homes in the, uh, right across from one another. And Diana, I had a house side by side. And Mary bought a house right on the corner of uh, Waverly, and I can't think of the, the cross street. Mary at the time was, uh, you know, uh, so... She showed us her house, you know, that's that beautifully done. And uh, went upstairs to check it out. I said, well, I'll be damned. You got a round bed? She said, you know, Mary being funny. Yeah, that's right, baby. I got a round bed. And I had never seen a round bed before, but she had one of the first that I've ever seen, a round bed in a, a living room. 
I've been in her bedroom. <laughs> yeah. Well, it it was uh it was like I say uh, it was um it was it was always great uh, to meet her. I can only imagine what it was like knowing her from the moment she was 15 years old, growing up uh, mm-hmm. to see the success with the Temptations, uh, excuse me, with the Supremes, and of course y'all with the Temptations. Uh, I I do have to ask you this: how does it how does it make you feel that ev- from from ever since then, if you are a girl group? you will be compared to the Supremes. And if you are, for the lack of a, a boy group or a male group, everybody, y'all are the standard. The Supremes are the standard for girl or women's groups, and the Temptations are the standard for boys and male groups. Everybody has to, has to be, they're, they're, they're held up to uh, the two of you. That That, that has to feel amazing that in order for them to be that that's the comparison y'all are the standard yeah i have been told that a lot of times and you know i think for the temps we we needed a yardstick to measure by we always you know when we first got together and i'm going back to paul eddie not even david al brian melvin and myself and uh, we admired a lot of the great gospel groups. When we would start off our rehearsals, we'd start off singing gospel before we even started doing, you know, uh, uh, contemporary songs, R&B or the pop uh, songs, because after we would warm up on the Swan Silvertones or Dixie Hummingbirds or something like that, then our first song, uh, our first song that we would do is, uh, and I will forget, a hundred pounds of clay by Gene McDaniels. And then we would start going into other things. But our yardstick was, uh, like I said, uh, gospel groups. So we were all Southern boys. So we were, you know, raised up listening. I didn't get into uh, contemporary groups of the R&B ilk until I moved to Detroit. So I think for us, you know, that was the yardstick that we would measure how we wanted to sound. And uh, and like I said, then Mickey Stevens heard us. Uh, I was singing, and he said, oh, Mr. Gordon's going to love you guys because you got that gospel-rich harmony, you know, with Eddie uh, uh, singing higher and Melvin in the lower and the rich harmony in between. So I, for us, I think we always had that as a yardstick to make sure how good we want to be. And then naturally, the late great Paul Williams said, well, you know, we got to, be exciting we have to move we got to sell sex and that's how we started with the uh uh choreographies but our yardstick of measuring was by the, the great gospel groups well because when uh, a few a couple of years ago um the uh new edition uh, uh michael bivens hit me up and they were trapped they were on tour and uh, and and Bivens, he said, "Hey man, we're we're interspersing these videos from different people, uh, in during the concert." He said, "I want I want you to do a video," and uh, and I said, and I did one, and I said, "Sure," and I said to him in the video, I said, "I said new edition for my generation. They are the temptations of our generation," and and right. I began to unpack that thing, and 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 Bivens was like, "Oh man," he said, "Man." He said that thing was so powerful 
I said, but I said, it's the case. I said, you know, I was born in 1968. So I grew up on my parents listening, listening to listen to Motown, listen to the temptations. But um, I said, but that wasn't, I said, when, when I came of age, I said, but new addition in terms of the group, in terms of presentation, in terms of concerts. Sure. And when they came to Essence, they came out in these tuxedos and they were in Essence uh, paying homage to, to that, that temptations look uh, and feel. Sure. And I said, that's the deal. Boys to men, same thing. The comparison with the temptations. Right. And so that's the deal. You you come out as a male group, that's you're going to be judged by that and, and you're going True. To have to have to live up to that standard. Sure, sure. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, you know, uh, Michael Davis said that uh, they uh, really admired and loved the Temptations because when Motown was in deep, uh, New York, um, Kadar Massingberg was the president at the time. And as I would come off the elevator and come into Motown's office, that was a big uh, picture. In fact, I'm looking at it. I have a big wall size uh, picture of the temps and we're walking down Woodward Avenue singing My Girl. And when I saw that, I said, oh, wow, that's nice. Well, I came back to the uh, Motown there in New York and I said, man, what happened to the picture of the temps up there? And somebody said, man, Michael Bivens got that. He took that down and uh, I guess could I let him have it. I said, well, <laughs> damn. Uh, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, so, no, yeah. first of all, no, first of all, knowing Kadar, he made Michael pay for it. <laughs> oh, you know what? You about have a point there because I love Kadar, but yeah, yeah, he, he's a businessman. Yeah, he is. Well, man, yeah. um, it it is always great to chat with you. I, I, I like, man, I last saw you. I ran to you and Ron at the airport, LAX. Y'all were flying somewhere. Right. I was flying somewhere. Um, and, uh, and it was, it was funny because, uh, you were in his wheelchair and somebody said, you saw Otis in the wheelchair. I said, I said, let me explain to something y'all. I said, Otis, like, I ain't got to walk around if necessary. I said, but when, I said, but when it's time to hit that stage, I said, all right. I said, he going to rise up and be ready to roll. Well, you know what you can just tell him that time I had knee surgery. Oh, there you go. There you go. Uh-huh. I said, but still, yeah. I said, but when he hit that stage, because y'all, because oh, yeah. y'all perform at the Chicago Urban League, and I was uh, sitting in the front row. The uh, the uh, Cheryl Jackson was the president, uh, and at one point, y'all had asked two or three of us to come on stage, and I hopped on stage, right. and y'all were doing right. the moves and everything. I said, man, I, I said, y'all, I said, don't y'all be sleeping on. The, I said, them bros. And then when Dennis Edwards, he came with the um, Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, and Dennis was a huge fan of mine. And I said, man, look, I said, y'all need to understand. I hear all y'all young cats and Ed LeVert with OJ same way. Eddie tell these young boys all the time. Eddie said, we will kick y'all ass on that stage. He said, with the singing and the dancing. He said, don't get it twisted. He said, we might be in our 70s, but we'll still kick y'all little young asses. I holler. That's what Eddie that that LeVert always says. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, no, that's. OJ's, I love OJ's. I mean, because that's a singing brother. Well, both of them. I can't just put it all on. Yeah, well, I love me some OJ's brothers. They can sing their asses off. Right. But the thing is, and he said, y'all put on a show. It's the you. It's the yeah. it's the outfits. It's the dancing. It's the music. Yeah. Uh, and that, it's a show. It's not just uh just walking around uh, yelling and screaming. No. You put on a show for the people. See, and that's that's artist development. You know, when we would get together, uh, meaning the, the especially after uh, we got David in the group, 
you know, we would start off singing a foggy day, a foggy day in London town. We would start off singing those kind of songs just to make sure that we could sing not only R&B or gospel, but if somebody were to ask us to sing something else, like on one of our albums, uh, Tempson and Malamu, we start off with Hello Young Lovers, uh, Impossible Dream. So we, I, I have always been blessed to have guys that could sing whatever a producer needed to hear or wanted his song delivered. I've always had the voices in my group that could sing anything. We wasn't just regimented for R&B, you know, gospel, pop, Five part of uh, uh, modern harmony. We even touched on uh, the ink spots at the Copacabana. We did uh, if I didn't care. So I've always had that kind of lineup that we could sing anything that was brought to us. Uh, we could sing. So and uh, like I said, OJ, cold piece of work. Those two brothers there, especially. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And you're you're based out uh, what? Are you in LA? LA? Uh, LA. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. look, uh, yeah. we're going to be, uh, uh, I still do some, some travel. We're doing all these, uh, different, I got this interview project. <laughs> I, I gotta, I gotta get together, man, bring our cameras there. Uh, we'll do, we'll sit down, we'll do all the COVID protections, but I got to sit down and we got to do a one-on-one. I did a one-on-one a couple of years ago with smoking. Uh, but we got to do that and oh, get, okay. get that thing on, uh, on video. Be glad to. Just let me know. All right, sir. Otis, I appreciate it, man. Right. Thanks for calling me back. Uh, and definitely, right. uh, man, condolences to um, uh, for, for Mary and, and all of her friends and family. Uh, great sister, but we're going to have some great memories that she left us with. Yes, yes. All right. Thank you. Good yes, sir. To you. All right. You take care. All right. See you later. All right. Peace Dylan. out. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for Roland Martin Unfiltered. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Ashley Banks. Be sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Ashley M. Banks. Roland will be back on Monday. But in the meantime, feel free to donate to Roland Martin Unfiltered. You can donate to our Zelle Venmo Cash app and PayPal accounts. And in the words of Roland, holla! It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff.
Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app.